All right, church, if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning. And before I uh, discuss or dive into our new series in Ephesians, I want to address a few things real quick. Uh, Last Sunday in my sermon, I... um, I pointed out the truth that we, as the church, uh, are specifically sent and, and placed by God so that in the darkest times this world has to offer, we shine bright the light of the gospel. And uh, little did I know that in saying that last Sunday, how dark a week we would experience, uh, not only within the church, but uh, from the events that we saw unfold in Uvalde, um, it has been a, a tremendously dark week that has been darkened by the reality of sin and the reality of a broken world that we live in. I do want to touch on real quick, um, if, if you are unaware, last Sunday afternoon around 3 o'clock, there was released a third-party report uh, by our uh, SBC Sexual Abuse Task Force that was formed by us as a convention in 2021 at the response of some events. I just need to give some, some backstory in case you're aware, unaware of all the, the goings-on. So in 2019, there were some events that led to the ousting of the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. Uh, at the allegations that he had covered up and even sought to uh, manipulate uh, stories of abuse on campus and things. And he was a, a key leader in our Southern Baptist Convention. And upon that ousting, that uncovered uh, and brought to light some things that needed to be brought to light. And there was a story later on that year in 2019 in the Houston Chronicle uh, uncovering and and diving into more allegations of abuse that were covered up by the convention, by the executive committee, specifically within the convention. And so, and then we obviously experienced the events of 2020. So in 2019, a sexual abuse task force was formed. We experienced the events of 2020. And in 2021, uh, we, as a convention, stated that we wanted a third-party report, uh, an investigation done, so that we could shine light on these areas, on these things, to figure out how far this stuff went and how many people knew and what they knew. And so we as a convention said, we want this to happen because this is right. And so we ordered the report ourselves. And that report was released by the Sexual Abuse Task Force last Sunday, and it uncovered that there was rampant knowing and covering up of uh, sexual abuse allegations across Southern Baptist churches by the executive committee, which governs and, and kind of goes about doing the things, the business of the Southern Baptist Convention in between meetings. I know this is just a, a lot to delve into, and that report was 288 pages long. And I'm still working my way through it. I'm slowly, intentionally slowly working my way through it, uh, partially because I I want to make sure that I have a thorough knowing of everything that's in there, also because I don't want it to consume all of my time. And so I'm still, I'm roughly around page 86 or so of that report. Uh, But in that report, it uncovers many different things that I've 
uh, address in a church email, but uh, among which there was a, a list being kept. Uh, they took advice, uh, legal counsel, rather than protecting the individual. They chose to protect the institution. All things which are antithetical to the gospel, which go against uh, the truth that we know that all people are created in the image of God. And so um, in, in, the, in the wake of that, the, uh, the, executive, the current executive committee has also released that list that was being kept so that those things can be out in the light even further. So there's still more to come about from this, but I wanted you to hear it. I wanted you to know what's going on, uh, and I will still be offering commentary in the days ahead as we find out more things and see the response and see what we need to do as a convention uh, and for us and how we as a church decide to respond to that. And so uh, I'd encourage you to be in prayer for those victims that uh, were pushed to the side for far too long. Uh, be in prayer for those churches that... Um, unknowingly, because the convention refused to reveal information that needed to be revealed, unknowingly hired abusers, and, um, and we will certainly be in prayer for how God guides us as Baptists in the days ahead. But enough of, of that. I, um, I want us now to turn our attention to the only place that we have which grounds us in times like that, and that is God's Word. And so I've been looking forward to this series for quite some time. We're going to spend the next several months in the book of Ephesians, delving into the depths of what the Lord has in store for us there, as it is a tremendous book full of so many truths that expand all of Scripture, and uh, it is a, a tremendous undertaking. And so we're going to take our time in looking at it. And as you can see, I've titled this series, Glorious Grace. And we'll see where that phrase comes from here in just a little bit this morning. But this phrase is not just a, a one-time passing statement or just a, a catchy title. Uh, no, it's, it's the book of Ephesians shouts the praise of God's glorious grace on his church through the work of Christ on the cross. And so my aim for us this morning and in the weeks ahead is to help us apply these marvelous truths to our understanding of God to our understanding of our fellowship as his church, to our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of this world and the things that take place therein. And so I've shaped this morning's outline. Hopefully you have an outline. The answers to that outline will be on the screen. But uh, as I do most of my outlines, I shaped this outline according to the text and the things which are revealed there. So as we approach the first six verses of Ephesians this morning, we're going to see how Paul emboldens the church at Ephesus by encouraging them to consider their identity in light of God's sovereign grace through the work of Christ. And so with that being said, I'll encourage you to stand one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle... This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and may it affect change in our hearts and may it mold us and shape us into who you've called us to be and who you've created us to be and may we walk accordingly from this place. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Church, so... 
You may or may not remember, as I've mentioned before, that I've actually had the opportunity to visit Ephesus on a travel study trip while in college uh, back in 2012. It feels weird to say. So this trip was, uh, it was an unbelievable experience and it was once in a lifetime, but I was able to take away a lot of information that I think will prove helpful in our study of the book of Ephesians moving forward. But I, I purposefully didn't want to uh, include some of that today as with this being the first sermon of the series, I wanted all of our attention to be on the text. And so with that being said, let me give us a little bit of historical context before we dive into the text this morning. So Ephesians is another one of Paul's prison epistles. And he wrote Ephesians while he was imprisoned in Rome. And you can read about that imprisonment in Acts 28 is where we see that. And he wrote it at the same time which he wrote Colossians and Philemon, which is around A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. Somewhere in there we know is what time these events were happening in which Paul was writing these letters from a Roman prison cell. And similar to Colossians, appropriately so, we just finished a very brief series in. These two letters share very many similarities. But they're very distinct in some of their major points of focus. And it's generally acknowledged that Ephesians, which we are now studying, can be split into two parts. Two parts. The first three chapters, we see Paul focus on emphasizing strong theological doctrine. And then in chapters 4 through 6, his challenge for the church is for them to see how that doctrine then affects our lives. Because doctrine, inevitably, if it's correctly believed and applied, affects practice. And so the entire work of Ephesians is saturated with the gospel. And the first three chapters of doctrine lift our focus to Christ. And then the last three chapters direct our focus to how our focus on Christ moves us as his church. And so, as with most of all of Paul's epistles, Ephesians builds itself, builds on itself as we move. As Paul continues to develop these ideas and show and and point to these different things and remind them of different things. And it's continually building. And then we get to the practice part, the, the effective nature of these things which we know about God and have seen revealed through God. And the introduction is no exception to this. It's not some throwaway greeting line, but rather it's the thesis upon which the preceding lines are expounding. So we read it again, Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, so he identifies himself, thankfully, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So let's pause right there. So Paul begins his letter by identifying himself with the title and authority of an apostle. Now, for us to understand the significance of that, we need to then ask, well, well, what is an apostle? Apostles were those who were either established as such by Jesus. So his initial uh, original 12 disciples or 11, the initial 11 uh, apostles after, of course, Judas uh, betrays Jesus and, and, and kills himself. And then we see also, we see that in Mark 3, Jesus instituting the role of the apostles or Apostles were also the direct witness to the resurrection. And so that's where Paul 
obviously, becoming a Christian much later. We see much later than the rest, he refers to himself as one untimely born. And so we have the original 11 apostles, and then you add Paul into that as an apostle because he was a direct witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And he would say of himself in 1 Corinthians, he would also go on to say of himself that he stated that he was the least of the apostles because of the situation in which he, he, he considered, he did not consider himself worthy because of his previous persecution of the church. And, and then that he knew that it was by God's grace alone that he had become an apostle. And so we know that this title and this authority of an apostle wasn't something that he lorded over people. So then why does he include it in his letter so often stating that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, well, the key there is then in what follows. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. See, Paul's role as an apostle was according to God's will. It was God-given, not some man-exalting platform or title in which he was saying that he needed to be lifted above all others, but he was simply acknowledging the authority that God had given him and that it was by God's will that he was a leader of the church by a sovereign calling. Paul is acknowledging that his authority and role are not due to his own ability, but rather he himself is a product of God's sovereign grace. So you see, we too must realize that our identity is shaped by God's will. And that's our first point on our outline this morning, that our identity is shaped by God's will. Because Paul is going to expound and build on this idea and pointing to himself here, but even just as he continues on in the next line, in that same verse, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So everything we have and everything we are is in Christ by the will of God. See, our identity, our, the, the very core of our being, who we understand ourselves to be, is founded and ha must be founded in our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done and accomplished for us. Our identity of Christ followers must be this, that we are his by his will and for his glory. So we must realize that God has also given us the roles and the titles that we have by his grace and for his glory. So he's made us moms and dads and grandparents and children and ranchers, and electricians, and homeschoolers, and teachers, and sheriff's deputies, and mechanics, and gin packers. In Christ, by the will of God, all of us, whatever title we hold, whatever job we have, it has been given to us by God, specifically for the purpose of showing and sharing in His grace, so that He can receive greater glory. See, our identity is not in what we do, but in who we do it for. Because when we realize that nothing is left to chance in our lives and that our identity is shaped in Christ by God's will, then we realize that everything that we do has purpose and meaning and value. 
And we approach life with a much different goal and ambition than those who are simply seeking to fulfill some self-desire or, or some desire to worship self or whatever it may be. See, we are to live as faithful stewards of God's grace as we grow in our knowledge of him and of his word. See, as we do this, we are continuing in this process of being made holy because that's how he addresses the church to the saints. This literally means holy ones or those who are being made holy. And so as we grow in our knowledge of him, we're continuing the process of being made holy and that's what defines us as saints, that we are pursuing holy living by God's will and for God's glory. So as to this, this is who Paul identifies the church as. So to be a saint, to be designated as a holy one is to be faithful in Christ Jesus. And as Paul continues to unfold this letter, we'll see that the statement that he made of his own identity by being of the will of God is true of all of us who are in Christ, that our identity is, has been, and was shaped by the will of God according to his good purposes. So who you were and who you are are all serving to shape you into who you are becoming by God's will and for God's glory. So there are no mundane happenings in your life. There is no chance. But God is shaping and purposefully molding us into who he has called us to be and created us to be in Christ Jesus. If you want another example, we see this even going back to the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah chapter 46, you can turn there or it'll be on the screen for you. Either way, keep a, keep a finger in Ephesians because we're coming right back to it. But Isaiah chapter 46, as Isaiah is unfolding for Israel, the idols that they have allowed to creep into their lives and God's purposing in all of their exile and, and torment, Isaiah says this, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 8, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So what God is communicating from there is the same thing he's been communicating from the moment that time began to tick, was that he is God and there is no other like him. And that he declares the end before the beginning even starts. And that everything he does is to accomplish his good purposes. And so as we... And what we see here is God does nothing on a whim. He has declared the end from the beginning. He works all things according to his purposes. And as we'll see, this is what Paul is setting the stage for, for the church at Ephesus. Continue there to verse 2. So we continue on. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the most common lines from Paul's greetings. You'll see it throughout the New Testament, throughout the epistles. Our world needs more grace. And our world is deprived of peace. Because we cannot find grace and we cannot find peace in this world. And so both of these can be had in abundance, but only in Christ. And so if grace is what you need, not only to experience grace, but if you need to, to show more grace, which is often what we struggle with, if peace is what you need, then the only place to find it is in Christ. This is exactly what Paul prays for the church that their understanding of the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ will grow that he wishes this upon them, that they will see this and understand it. So that as their understanding grows, their measure of grace and peace would grow as well. And so may we pray the same for one another and for ourselves, that we would seek God's grace, that we would desire it as a weary traveler who's lost in the desert. And then we find that God's grace and peace are a never-ending stream that provides for and nourishes us through his word. And so don't skip over that title for God there, though. So we see grace to you and peace from who? Where does it all come from? Where does it, that stream come from? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't skip over that title of Father. There. This is going to be important here in just a little bit because as I said, Paul builds on these ideas and these things that everything has meaning and purpose. It took a long time and much effort to write these letters. So there's no word that's lost or, or Im unimportant. So we're going to come back to that title here in just a little bit. But we move on to verse 3. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the question we ask here, what reason has he given us for exclaiming him? You see, it's not this way in English, but in Greek, verses 3 through 14 make up one complete sentence. And so if you've ever struggled with run-on sentences, find, find encouragement in Paul that it's okay because it's scriptural to have run-on sentences. Kids, don't use that as an excuse with school, okay? Don't, don't try that. But verses 3 through 14 make up one complete sentence. And this is the beginning of one complete line of praise and exaltation to God. But for what? What, what reason has he given us for exclaiming him? Well, he, he says it in the first line of this exclamation of praise. We start with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this exclamation of praise back to God. So what God has accomplished for us in Christ is deserving of eternal praise. You see, when, when, when we read blessing upon God in the Bible, it's not saying that we have anything by which we could possibly bless God with that he doesn't already have, but it's simply a reciprocation of praise for what he has done for us. 
We are simply exclaiming how great he is for what he has accomplished, what he's done, how he's displayed himself in creation, what he has won for us in Christ, and what he has blessed us with in Christ. And so, what reason has he given us for exclaiming him? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. So those of us who are in Christ have been blessed, that is granted by God's grace, that is we've been given something that we didn't deserve, couldn't earn. Each one of us has been given, we've been blessed by God's grace so as to say that we don't deserve it with every, that is in total, all, in case you missed that, every spiritual blessing, that is everything that is outside of ourselves and that we could not conceive of or perceive or manipulate, he has given us that in Christ. That all, we owe all to Christ because Christ has given us everything that we could not possibly achieve for ourselves. And then it goes even further. It gets even better because where has he given us these things? Where do we have representation? In the heavenly places. So not only has he given us everything that we couldn't achieve on our own, but he's also given us representation in the very place where we could never get on our own. So in Christ is the hinge upon which the floodgates of spiritual blessing turn. If you're not in Christ then, the adverse is true. That you stand condemned with no mediator in the heavenly places and no spiritual blessings. All we have is Christ. So notice Paul says, blessed us. So again, that goes to serve further serve the point that as an apostle, he's not saying that he's above the gospel. He's not saying that he is above the church. He's just acknowledging the title and the role that God has given him by his grace. And he said that God has blessed us. So he identifies, he says, I'm right there with you. That I too couldn't achieve anything in the spiritual places. I too could not put myself in the heavenly places. But in Christ... He's given us every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul identifies himself with the church at Ephesus, saying that they are one in Christ. So without Christ, there are no saints. There is no holy process. There is no process of being made holy. There are no apostles. There are no spiritual blessings. There is no representation in the heavenly places without Christ. So in Christ... We are spiritually in the heavenly throne room. Our presence with God is in him, in Christ. The very place where seraphim cover their faces and their feet and prophets cry out their unworthiness. We who are by faith covered by the atoning blood of Christ have access there through him. Praise God that our identity is shaped by his will And that by God's grace, our identity is shaped in Christ. What a great hope and promise. 
And what great reason for rejoicing because this is just the start of this exclamation of blessing that's one, run, one long run-on sentence. That in Christ, his father, Christ's father, is now our father. Did you catch that? Because Paul has been saying here, grace to you, peace from God, our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a heavenly Father because our heavenly brother has paid the price necessary for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. What's that blessing? That we can call God Father. And this is meant to give us hope. In Christ, we who were once outside looking in because of our own rebellion are now with him in the heavenly places. Paul will continue to expound this idea throughout his letter as we go on to read in Ephesians 2.10. One of the more well-known verses from Ephesians. There we see we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That he has shaped us in Christ. And given us everything in Christ. So we've been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Been given access to the heavenly places in Christ. And this is what it means to be his saints. To have our identity, our very being shaped in Christ. So then the natural question is, how has he shaped our identity in Christ? Well, we keep reading. Verse 4. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So our salvation and calling by God unto salvation are to be clear points of certainty and assurance and points of hope for us and confidence in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. You see, the providential grace of God is a reason for confidence, not uncertainty. Because either God is sovereign over all or he is not sovereign at all. And so that is where we see that we are saints by the providence of God. That's our next point. We are saints by the providence of God. We see this not just in Paul's writings, but from Peter as well. In 1 Peter, we see Peter seeking to embolden churches that are scattered on the front lines of the faith, on the very edges of how far the missionaries have traveled. And they're experiencing great persecution and, and cultural pressure. And he encourages them by drawing a parallel between their experiences as Christians in the midst of cultural paganism and with the Exodus. So he draws a parallel there. And he calls them elect exiles in 1 Peter 1.1. And then in 1 Peter 1.2, he says this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So there we have again this idea that God's drawing us to himself according to his grace and not according to anything that we have done is a reason for us to grow in confidence. This is what Peter is encouraging persecuted churches with. 
that know that you are chosen exiles, that God has, has saved you in this time and place for this purpose. So that as you're being persecuted, as you're experiencing hardship, he is doing this for his glory through you. And he is known. He knows your suffering and has known your suffering. And so consider also this, the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. You can turn there, make a note of it, or it'll be on the screen as well. But John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking. Here he uh, begins to speak to this crowd. John chapter 10, verse 14. And he says this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So as, as close a relationship and knowing of one another with, uh, is within the Trinity, that's how close the relationship is between Christ and the saints. I know my own, my own know me, just as I know the Father, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So it's not as if God looks at the sheep pen and says, Oh, where did this one come from? Now he looks at his sheep pen and he says, I know my own and my own know me. The picture here that he's using is that of a, a sheep pen that's outside of city, outside of the market, where all the shepherds would, would house their sheep as they bring them in to market. And then, of course, you think to yourself, well, well, if all the shepherds put their sheep in one pen, how do, how do they keep them apart? Well, he goes on to say there and extrapolate on that, but he, he says the, the shepherd enters by the sheep gate and he's able to get in. And as he calls... The sheep know his voice. So each shepherd would have their own voice or their, their own calling. And their sheep would, would be able to hear by sound and know, that's where I go. That is my shepherd. So this is the picture that Christ is drawing on for those he knows. But he says, I have more sheep to go and get. But notice, there are sheep who have not yet to bring in but notice he claims possession over these sheep already. They are mine. You see, God is one of providential order, not random chaos. And we see this from the beginning of time itself because we've been, we've seen his uh, from the foundations of the earth that he is about order and structure. And again, what has he done to make us his? He bought us with the blood of Jesus. He bought our holiness, which makes us saints. He bought our place in the heavenly places where we could never go on our own. And this was his plan, his doing, his sovereign grace. I know my own and my own know me. 
You see, this is true love, that he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Well, how did he choose us in Christ? What, what did Christ do to accomplish this? He laid down his life for the sheep. We know, we saw that. This is true love, though, that he laid down his life to, for the sheep so that that calling would then go out into all the earth and bring his sheep in. This is our example of love, our standard. And as we see, this is exactly where Paul points because you might have noticed there, we didn't complete verse four. There's just one small part left because in English, obviously we have separate, we got sentences. We don't get the, the run-on sentence effect here of one long exclamation of praise. But even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So John tells us that we can't even, John tells us in 1 John, tells us that we can't even know love apart from God. You see this in 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So where has God ultimately displayed his love for us? On the cross. See, Paul launches us back to the scene pre-Genesis. Before, so that space that's at the top of your Bible in Genesis, it goes Genesis, and then you go to the top of the page. Like Paul takes us all the way back to there. Before you can even read the title for the chapter of Genesis, Paul says, There, God knew. He takes us there and says that when all that existed was God and three persons, even there, God knew you. He knew your sin. He knew the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves. And there, before we could answer for ourselves, before we could accomplish anything or boast in anything, there was the one whose steadfast love endures forever. And there, he chose us in Christ. Not according to ourselves, because we had yet to even lift a selfish finger, but according to his gracious love. See, God's motivation for saving us was solely intrinsic. There was nothing in us that was salvable. There was nothing in us that was worthy to be saved. But what motivated his saving work? His love. That in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Now, some will say, well, how could a loving God choose some, not choose others? How is, it, how is that loving? And to that, I say two things. One, we can't apply human standards of love and justice to the very one who himself is the standard of love and justice. Because as we already saw, that we, we don't even know what love is apart from God. And that would be like if, if we wrote our own dictionary solely based off of our experiences and our knowledge and our definition of truth. And then we inevitably found a definition in the real dictionary that didn't meet our standard of our own dictionary. And then we just dismissed it and tried to correct it with our own. 
It just doesn't work that way. Though there are some in our society that are trying to do that very thing. Number two, God has displayed himself for all to see. He has written his law on our hearts. He has cried out to the world through his word, through his gospel, and through his created order. He has and continues to throw his, the seed of his gospel through his church. The problem is not all that have hearts have hearts of good soil. Some are so rocky and hard because of their own self-exaltation that they will never worship anyone other than God, the God of themselves. Some have thorny hearts. He's called and is calling, but only his sheep know his voice. Why are his sheep his? Because he laid down his life for the sheep. We must be careful in our cries for justice because the truth is that we all stand justly accused of sin before a thrice holy God. And so if we justly received our understanding of justice, we wouldn't even be standing here. In our form of justice, those who are guilty are condemned, convicted, and killed. But where do we look for God's justice? Where do we look to understand how God uses the injustice of this world to accomplish his own purposes. We look to the cross where the one who is both son of God and son of man was unjustly hung on a tree to graciously make the just atonement for our sin that we might be able to justly stand before God. This is the great conundrum of the cross that the world cannot understand. We cannot understand God's sovereign justice without understanding his sovereign grace. So when we cry for justice, wondering, how, God, could you let this happen? Years of scandal and abuse and evil. Or, or God, why? Why must the wicked prosper and evil be allowed to take the lives of the innocent? How could God be working in that? Well, we look no further than the cross where the life of the innocent was given for the life of the guilty. There we see how God is providentially working in all things at all times to accomplish his own good purposes. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Romans 8, 32. Now notice right there, you'll see this language. We see it here, adoption. And again, I told you we'd come back to that title of God of Father that Paul uses in the introduction. We see it right there in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, ladies, fear not. You see the word sons there, and you think, well, what the heck? But don't, don't, work, don't fret. This is not an exclusion of you. What Paul is saying here is that in Christ, we are all adopted as sons. Therefore, we're all made worthy to receive the inheritance from the Father. 
As we go, went through Genesis, we saw time and again how the eldest son was the one who was deserving of the inheritance, although it doesn't always work that way. We see in the story of the prodigal son that the, the sons come asking their father for their, their inheritance to go ahead and give it to him. And so what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, all of us have been adopted as sons. Therefore, we all have, by God's grace, been given access to the inheritance. We're all made worthy, not by what we've done, but by what he has accomplished in Christ. So in Christ, we who were once lost and without hope while living on our own accord are now grafted in to be part of the family of God. And what purpose do we serve in God's family? Well, he says it right there at the end of verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, we are saints for the will of God. See, God is at work in making us holy and bringing us together as his church and, and, and uniting us in his word and in our worship to accomplish his will exactly where he's placed us here in Henderson, at our jobs, in our families. He is accomplishing his will for his glory. And then we continue reading there to verse 6. We see what all of this is pointing us to shout of acclamation for. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now the beloved there is Christ. And he has blessed us in Christ to be even able to, to praise the grace in which he has lavished on us in Christ. We are saints for the will of God, to the praise of God's glorious grace or the glorious grace of God. See, from eternity past to this very moment to eternity future, all we have is Christ. And if you're not found in Him, then for eternity, you will not be with Him. So the truth is there. Turn and repent or continue on the dead end after dead end circle that this life provides. Either find grace and peace or live without grace and peace. Either hear the call of the shepherd and respond or allow that seed to fall on your stony heart and continue to worship yourself. Because those of us who are called according to his purpose by his grace, will continue to shout, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that it would affect change in our hearts as all of us have hearts that have been ravished and impacted by sin but I pray that as your voice, as your gospel, as, as the seed of your gospel is thrown upon the soil of our hearts, those of us who have already responded would respond, continue to respond by being your saints, to be your holy ones, to allow your word, to, to seek you through your word, to make us holy as you call us to be. And God, I pray for those who may not have responded to your gospel, that as you are calling you are offering up your shepherd's call that your sheep would respond. 
they would not be able to resist your grace as we know none can. God, continue to bless our study of your word. Pray that you would be with us as we leave this place and seek to live out your word and give us grace where we fall short and help us to hold one another accountable, encourage and push and pull one another closer to you each day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.